We continue then in our series this morning, The Truth About. And uh, you would understand with me that I would rather talk about any other subject uh, of your choosing than to talk this morning about this one. And I recognize also that you would probably uh, much rather listen to me on any other subject than uh, this one. And having had so much fun uh, talking with you about heaven a few weeks ago, it seems an awful shame uh, that we can't just move on somewhere else uh, this morning. Why can't we? Why can't we move on and leave ourselves reveling in the joy of uh, heaven? If you uh, missed heaven a fortnight ago, then that's available to you on CD and online in the the, the usual way. And if you've ever wondered about heaven being a a rather dull, monotonous place, if that resonates with you and you didn't hear uh, what I said a few weeks ago, then I'd encourage you uh, to listen and to read what the Bible says about heaven. But today, the truth about hell. Why can't we ignore it? The dilemma is this, that the Bible talks about hell far more than I would like to think it does. And the Bible talks about hell far more than the number of sermons you've heard on this subject would probably suggest. Unless, of course, you were brought up uh, in a church environment where hell and damnation was the staple diet of uh, the preacher. Some of you here were brought up in that environment, Many others of us, though, even though we were brought up in an evangelical uh, environment, reacting against the fire and brimstone preaching of the Victorian era, have found hell to be pushed right to the back burner, not mentioned very often, if at all. So can we leave it there, where most of us naturally put it somewhere at the back of our minds, out of sight, and out of mind as much as possible. I suppose that if the biblical references to hell were obscure and tucked away somewhere in a remote part of the text that was difficult for us to understand, we could be tempted to let it slip off our horizon. But the verses aren't like that. Anticipated in the Old Testament and then talked about in the New Testament uh, in many different places. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. And I guess to endure the cross, he needed to have what he was saving us from in very sharp focus. Maybe that's why he talked about it more than anybody else. But Paul talks about it too, and John talks about it, and Luke talks about it, and the others, Hebrews talks about it, for example, and James and Peter and Jude, and of course the book of Revelation talks about it. If we're serious about listening carefully to what the Bible has to say, then we need to face, as C.S. Lewis did, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially our Lord's own words. We could, of course, and this is another approach, we could, of course, decide not to bother with those bits of the Bible. Now, to be sure, some people approach the Bible a bit like that. Anything they don't like, or they don't understand, 
or they're not willing to accept, let's remove it, let's take it out, let's uh, concentrate on the bits that we like and can accept and leave the bits that we can't. And they come to the Bible believing that in some way they have authority over it. They are above the Bible. They can look down on it and therefore can pick and choose those things in the Bible that they'd like to accept. In a sense, they're saying that the Bible uh, doesn't know best, that they know best, that they are more enlightened when it comes to discerning the truth. Apart from being rather arrogant, it's quite obvious to us as we think about it that that approach is fatally flawed. If I go to the Bible and say I like that bit, so I'll keep it in, but I don't like that bit, so I'll get rid of it, I can't accept that bit, so I'll I'll, I'll not concentrate on it very much, but I can accept this bit over here, so that's what I'll focus on, I end up with a faith that is in my own image. I end up with a faith that I have created. A faith where I have decided what's in and what's out. Where I have decided what's true and what isn't. Can a fallen human being possibly be relied upon to judge the truth of things concerning a perfect God? There would be no logic to that. It makes no sense for me as a fallen human being to decide what I think is true and what I think is false. I end up with a faith that is reduced to my own imperfect intellect, to my own prejudices and my own bias. So I guess there are two options left. We either accept that the Bible is an interesting book, but none of it really matters, or has any authority over us, or we accept that all of it matters. At least those two options hold a certain amount of intellectual consistency. What is inconsistent is to say, I'll have some of that, but I won't have some of that. And when we looked at the truth about heaven, we were glad to say we believed in heaven, I hope. Hello? And if on that day, after you'd been encouraged a little bit about heaven, someone stopped you on the way out and said to you, why do you believe in heaven? You would have said, I believe in heaven because it's in the Bible. Because Jesus talked about it, and Paul talked about it, and Hebrews, and Luke, and Peter, and Jude, and James, they all talked about it, so I believe in it. We cannot therefore now say today, however much we would like to, we don't believe in hell, even though Jesus talked about it and even though Paul talked about it, so on and so forth. That's the crux of the dilemma. If I take the comfort of heaven, I must accept the challenge of hell. And that's why this topic is part of this series. And that's why we can't ignore it, and why it needs to be on our agenda. So, simply we can't dismiss hell, firstly, because the Bible talks about it. Secondly, though, we can't dismiss uh, the issues relating to hell because it's the reason for Christ. It's the reason for Christ. At the heart of Christianity is Christ. At the heart of Christ, his life and his mission, is his death. His death on the cross as a punishment on our behalf, taking the consequence on our behalf for the sins of the world. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, dying for us, 
to save us, to save us from our sinfulness. If there is or was no hell, if on death everyone goes to heaven, then what was Jesus saving us from? What was the point of his death? Why did he die in such an agonizing way for the world? But if we accept, if we accept what the Bible says about the central event that the whole of our faith rests upon, that he was being punished for our wrong, which is what, of course, the Bible teaches. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we take that seriously, the sheer awfulness of his suffering and the lengths he went to achieve it suggests more than a little that it was to save us from something quite horrific. If there is no hell, then I need no saviour. Jesus' death makes no sense, and our Christian faith unravels. It makes no sense for us to put our trust in Jesus without recognizing he was saving us from something. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this whole issue? Now, we're not going to say everything this morning that the Bible has to say, but I want to offer you just two markers before I ask another question in order that we might hang our thoughts on those things together. In relationship. To ask people today, most people believe that the default destination, if they believe in heaven or anything else beyond this earth, most people think that the default destination is heaven. They may not know what it's like, they may not know what they will find when they get there, but the general assumption is that there is a better place and that's the default destination of men and women. We're not quite as confident as uh, the Americans, needless to say, where every one American who believes he's going to hell is balanced by 120 Americans who believe they're going to heaven. But a similar kind of general confidence exists in our world. In popular belief, Everybody goes to heaven unless you are really bad and then that really bad person may go to hell. But that optimism that we see expressed so uh, casually around us is in such stark contrast to the Bible and the words of Jesus. Enter, says Jesus, through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road to life, and only few find it. The Bible is very consistent. The default destination is hell for everyone. The default destination is hell for everyone. And we'll come back to this a different way. There is one thing, you see, one thing that keeps all of us, every person here, every person in this world, from going to heaven. 
And it's the same thing that stops all of us from going there. And that's sin. This malignant cancer that has affected every member of the human race. The Bible is quite emphatic. For all have sinned. And therefore they fall short of God's glory. They fall short of heaven's standard. They fall short and can't reach it. And what does sin do? Sin separates us from God. We're far too casual about it. We are amazed at uh, looking at it this way, whereas the Bible most of the time is amazed that God doesn't simply condemn all of humanity for her sinfulness. What does sin do? It separates us from God. God cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. He cannot look upon it. He cannot tolerate it. So because we are all sinners, no one here is able to enter God's presence. No one here automatically goes to heaven. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. And and there's nobody here who's pure. And there's nobody here who isn't tainted with shame. And there's nobody here that isn't touched by deceit. We cannot go to heaven as we are. Remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about heaven. Heaven is heaven because God is there. That's what makes heaven the place that it is. It is God's undiluted presence that makes heaven all of those things we anticipate and we celebrated a fortnight ago. Heaven would not be heaven if God was not there. If we die as we are, the sin in our lives prevents us from entering God's presence. We are therefore excluded from heaven because heaven is the presence of God. God cannot and will not tolerate sin. So the only place we can go as sinful human beings is outside of God's presence. This place outside God's presence is what the Bible calls hell. There are loads of different uh, words and descriptions and images used to describe hell. But at the end, it all comes down to one very simple but profound piece of information. And it's this, that hell is outside God's presence. The ethos or atmosphere in any place is set by its inhabitants. In your street, there are probably lots of houses that are all the same. But the atmosphere in each of those houses will be different because of the people that are in them. Heaven is heaven because it is filled with the presence of God. Hell is hell because his presence is not there. Primary inhabitants, as we'll see in a moment, of hell is Satan and his demons. That's what it was designed for. And in a sense, those inhabitants set the tone for this place. I tried to get you to imagine heaven. 
Now imagine a place where God's presence does not go. A place that is completely separated from Him. The goodness, the love, the mercy, the grace of God. Those things, or the absence of them, will be hell's greatest torment. God is light and love and joy and mercy and peace and satisfaction and grace and beauty. Imagine a place without those things. Let's get away from the old characteristics of God somehow gleefully sending people to hell, of God who is conjuring up ever more inventive ways to punish people, to gain some sadistic pleasure. The torment of hell is of its own making. Exclusion from God's presence is punishment enough. A place of outer darkness described by Jesus as one where there will be gnashing of teeth. Why is it dark? Because the light of God's presence will not shine. Does God enjoy allowing people to enter this darkness? No. But he knows with great anguish of heart that without his presence, it will be dark. Remember Golgotha, the place of death. Outside the city where God, in Jesus Christ, took upon himself the sin, the punishment, the consequence of sin, in himself. What happened? What happened as the sin of the world was placed upon him? God removed his presence. God the Father turned away. For that is in essence the consequence, the punishment of sin. And as God turned away, he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says it was dark. It was dark. Hell is what it is because it is a place without God's presence. Hell the place it is not because God has worked hard at creating something awful, but simply because without him it's awful. So the Bible uses a variety of images to try and express this place where God isn't place of torment, place of eternal shame and contempt, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Kevin O'Connor writes, hell will be a terrible place, separate from the presence of God, the rejected Lamb, the holy angels and the redeemed. No light, no life, peace, joy, righteousness, nor salvation, but only darkness and, tor and torment of conscience will be there for those who've rejected and despised the grace of God. This is the hell that Jesus died to save us from. You see, the prospect of hell was so dreadful, the anguish so real, that Jesus was at great pains to warn people about it. And he uses his most aggressive and strongest language when speaking of it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, 
pluck it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Take radical measures, said Jesus, in your life to avoid this place without God's presence. So how do you do that? How do you take the radical measure to make sure you avoid this place? Well, who goes there? Who goes to hell? Well, you say, Simon, you've already answered that question. And you're absolutely right. We've already answered the question. The Bible is emphatic that the unrighteous cannot go into God's presence. And therefore they are excluded from his presence, which is itself hell. So is there any hope? Because the unrighteous, that's, that's everyone. That's everyone. Well, there is great hope. There is great hope. And what I'm about to say in the next three minutes is the most important thing I ever, ever, ever say in this place or in any other place. And if you are in our church, or even if you're not, I want you to understand these next three minutes more than anything else you've ever paid attention to in the whole of your life. Jesus can make the unrighteous righteous. Jesus can make the unrighteous righteous. No one can do it by themselves. The Bible says there is no one who will be declared righteous by observing the law. We can't do it. It doesn't matter how much you tell me to live the right way, I am not able to. I cannot do this by myself. I am unrighteous. But it is through faith in Christ that Jesus makes unrighteous people righteous. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. We are unrighteous. Because we are unrighteous, we cannot enter God's undiluted presence. We will be excluded from his presence, which is hell itself but we can become righteous before God by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it's nothing to do with going to church, and it's nothing to do with living a good life, and it's nothing to do with trying a bit harder, and it's nothing to do with supporting charities. It's nothing to do with how you look. It is to do with trust in Jesus. Jesus can make the unrighteous righteous. We are all unrighteous. No one can do this by themselves. You say, and Simon, you're repeating yourself. I most certainly am. We cannot do this by ourselves. Come to church as often as you like. It will not do this for you. Read your Bible every day. It will not do this by itself for you. Pray every day. Of itself, it will not do this for you. No one can do it by themselves. It is by faith in Christ. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so we go back to that verse that we began with at the beginning of this series. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of who? Everyone who believes. Why? 
Because for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is why your eternal destiny and mine is completely and utterly dependent upon knowing Jesus. It's the only way to be righteous. He is the only one who has paid and dealt with the consequence of your sin and mine, and therefore he is the only one who can cleanse us and save us from it. Knowing Jesus, therefore, lies at the heart of it all. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did this, we prophesied in your name, we did that in your name, we drove out demons, even performed loads of miracles. I will tell them plainly, simply, I never knew you. That's what matters, because it's only in knowing Jesus that you can receive for yourself the righteousness that you need to go into God's perfect, undiluted presence. Now this is eternal life, therefore, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's all about knowing him, trusting him, believing him. God so loved the world. Why? And how did he show it? He showed it by giving his only son. For what purpose? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But here again, Jesus talking very plainly about the default position. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Believing is so essential because it's in that belief that we are made righteous. And that is the single thing that matters when you stand before God. As his heart in love goes out to you then as it does now, it will be, are you able to enter his presence? The Bible constantly affirms that we can be sure of these things. The Bible doesn't want us to live in any doubt. The Bible doesn't want us to live with anxiety about these things. There is a certainty. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, and he will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus said to uh, uh, Martha, do you believe this? He says it to us too. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know through that belief that you have eternal life. Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Why? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we have this hope. What is this hope? It's an anchor for our soul. It's not uncertainty. It's not for us to wake up every morning with anxiety about our status before God, but for us to be firm and secure. Because Jesus on our behalf has gone behind the curtain into the holy place. And so he, with our sin, can take it away and take us with him. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one. Isn't that a great verse? No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus says over your life when you trusted him. doesn't matter who's out there. Human people, spiritual people, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Hallelujah. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Finally, what does God think? What does God think about hell? I think it's important that we understand it was never his intention that it should even exist. And it was most certainly never his intention that human beings should go there. Hell was not prepared for man. That is Billy Graham puts it using that phrase. Hell was not prepared for man. God never meant that man would ever go to hell. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But man rebelled against God and followed the devil. What does God think? He wishes. He wishes it never existed. He wishes that no one should perish. No one should perish. He's not patient. He's not uh, impatient. Uh, towards the end of the biblical time, they were getting anxious that Jesus hadn't come back and they were kind of saying to God, well, have you forgotten about us? And God says, no, I, I am patient. Why am I patient? Because I don't want anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Finally, what does God think about hell? He gave everything to save us from it. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life. What more could a human being give, let alone God? Gave his life as a ransom for many. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you ever, ever, ever get the idea, if you are ever tempted to think that God is chilled, about people going to hell, then as fast as you possibly can, get up that hill to that blood-stained cross, look into the tortured face of a dying man, feel the darkness closing in, and hear the cry of a father losing his son. And know that God stops at nothing to save us from living in eternity without him. For his son was from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us 
from the coming wrath. We don't talk much about God's judgment, but sin cannot go unpunished. The ultimate punishment for sin is to be outside God's presence. And there won't be a moment, there won't be a moment at that time when people will be accusing God. Everyone will know that, as Abraham said, the judge of the earth was just. Everyone, there will be no arguing. There will be no complaint. But go to that hill, won't you? Won't you take that journey outside the city, maybe even now in your mind's eye, to that bloodstained cross, and see if you can the face of a tortured, dying man feel the darkness closing in. The horror of sin filled his soul. And the father turned away. My God, why? Abandoned by God, his father. The Godhead, the Trinity, torn in two. The temple being torn was nothing, the curtain nothing, to the wrench in the eternal relationship of God wrenched apart because of the destructive power of sin. And in that awful God-forsaken moment, know that God abandoned him, that he might never, ever abandon you.